Awesome. Um, well, I guess we should have a sermon, right? That would probably be a good idea. So I uh, want to continue um, with our series. And so this is the way I want to introduce our sermon for today. Two years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. And it was an incredible experience, an incredible time together at the Grand Canyon. And in fact, this is my, then he was 13 years old at the time. This is my second son, Andrew. And there he is at the Grand Canyon. And we went to a couple different spots along the Grand Canyon. One of the places we stopped on was a skywalk. So some of you who have been to the Grand Canyon, we spent the whole day there going all around. But this one place where there was this skywalk, it literally, if you can imagine, like a walk uh, that with like a glass bottom that went out over the canyon. So you walk out, and just so you know, it's a mile drop from the glass floor that you're looking down at. It's a straight mile all the way down to the canyon floor. And so I, we go out there on the skywalk, and Andrew and I are walking together on the skywalk. I didn't get any pictures of him there because they didn't allow you to take pictures on that. So we walk out on the skywalk, and it's just breathtaking. Just remember, like, the wind is blowing. You're looking down, and you're in this incredible expanse of God's creation. And for me, it was just like an overwhelming, sacred, holy kind of moment. My boys always call me a Boy Scout. Whenever we're out in nature, and they're like, Dad, you're such a Boy Scout, because I just get so into nature. And so we're out there, and, and so Andrew and I are leaning on the edge of the skywalk, like leaning over, and I'm just overwhelmed with the beauty of this place. And just with the holiness of this moment, being there with my family. And so I say to Drew, I say, Drew, isn't this amazing? And Andrew, right next to me, leaning over the edge, answers by saying, <laughs> and then he proceeds to hock a loogie, as they say, <laughs> over the edge of the skywalk. And we watched, I'm somewhat horrified watching as it just descends all the way down out of view. We never saw it hit the ground because it's a mile drop. It literally just disappears out of view. And then Andrew turns to me and says, Dad, you're right. This is amazing. <laughs> Wasn't quite the experience I was hoping he was getting out of this moment. The di- I mean, the difference between father and son in this moment, for me, this is like this holy, beautiful, sacred moment. For him, this was just a great place to hock a loogie, apparently. That's, that's what this was. And so today, I want to wrap up our series today, um, working, talking about uh, the life of King David. We've been in a series called Shepherds and Kings, talking about the highs and the lows, the life of King David. And I want to end by comparing the legacy between father and son of King David and his son that succeeded him as the king of Israel, King Solomon. And I just want to compare their two legacies today. And just like my son and I in in this moment with the Grand Canyon, the biggest place you see the difference between King David and King Solomon as it relates to their legacy is in how they handled the sacred, holy things of God. That's where you really see the difference between the two of them, is in how they handled the sacred, holy moments, the sacred, holy things of God. The difference between King David and King Solomon is like the difference between a steak and a cow patty. They both come from a cow, right? But one sizzles and one stinks. And in the same way, David and Solomon, they both come from the same family. They both come from the same covenant people who had this relationship with God. They both were kings of Israel, and yet they could not be more different from one another in the way they handled the holy things of God. And so we're going to jump in and we're going to look at uh, the difference between them and their, and their legacy. You ready? It happened like this. Here we go. That's the, I'm kind of sad that's the last time I get to say that for this whole series. Um, so here, here's where we find ourselves in the story. King David is at the end of his life. And he's looking back on the course of his life. He's realizing that he doesn't have much time left. And so he decides, I'm going to build a temple. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a temple for the Lord 
my legacy is not complete until I build this temple. That's how I want to be remembered. That's going to be my legacy, and I'm going to build this beautiful temple, which raises the question, why? Why did David feel like he needed to build a temple in his old age at the end of his life? Why did he feel like his legacy was somehow incomplete unless he accomplished the task of building a temple? Well, to explain that, what you have to understand is you have to understand something about the history of the people of Israel, God's people that he was leading. If you didn't know, the, uh, God's people were slaves in Egypt. You can find that in the book of Exodus. They had been slaves in Egypt, and they had been under the control of Pharaoh, and they were his servants. And now there were two things, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, there were two things that they did not have. The two things they did not have when they were slaves in Egypt was sacred time and sacred space. When you are a slave, you work seven days a week. There is no day off. Every single day looks exactly like the day before it. You wake up and you do the same thing. There is no change. It's completely monotonous. There is no sacred time. It's all the same time because your time is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. In the same way, when you are a slave... There is no sacred space. You don't get to have a sacred space like this where you can worship your God. You're in Egypt. You're you're only allowed to worship their gods when they tell you to. Even their homes, the places where they lived didn't even belong to them. You were in the slaves' quarters. There was no sacred space for you. And so this is what it meant to be a slave in in Egypt for for God's people. The reason that's such a big deal is if you contrast that with the actual beginning of the Bible, If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the way the the story of the Bible begins, it opens with this God who is so loving and so generous that he creates the heavens and the earth. And then he creates this garden, this perfect place where everything is the way God created it to be. And he puts the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, in this garden to live in harmony with God, to live in harmony with each other and with creation. And that's how the, the whole creation account begins. And in this creation account, God, Adam and Eve are given from the very beginning two things, sacred time and sacred space. The very first thing, in fact, in all of the Bible that God calls holy, the Hebrew word is kodash, the very first thing that God calls kodash or holy in the Bible is the seventh day. It says God stopped from his work, and on the seventh day God rested, and he called that Sabbath day, that day of rest, holy, kodash. That's the first thing in all of the Bible that's called holy, that's called set apart or holy, is time. God creates a sacred time, the Sabbath day, and sets it aside. And in the same way, the Garden of Eden was this sacred space. It was a space within the larger space of creation that was sacred, that was holy. It was set apart. It's where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. It's where they had communion and interaction with God. So if you can get this idea, baked into this whole thing from the very, very, very beginning is this idea that human beings, in order to truly be free, have to have two things. We have to have sacred time, and we have to have sacred space. As a human being, if you do not have sacred time and sacred space, you are not free. You can't be free unless you have those two things. And so if you follow the story, what happens is when Moses calls God's people out of Egypt, and he leads them out of slavery, out of bondage, and out of Egypt, there are two things that are promised to God's people. They are sacred time and sacred space. In the wilderness, 
Moses reinstates the practice of Sabbath. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments that you find in Exodus 20 that you will observe uh, a Sabbath day that is holy and set apart to God, so you'll do no work on the Sabbath day. Thou shalt take a day off is actually one of the Ten Commandments. And so sacred time is restored to them by Moses. But sacred space never really had fully happened yet by David's time. They'd had the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then they'd gone into the promised land, which was the land that was the inheritance of God's people. But they hadn't built a temple yet. There had been no sacred space that had been uh, constructed or, or, or re-put in place for God's people. And so sacred time had happened through Moses. Sacred space had not happened yet. So David, King David, gets to the end of his life, and he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to be the one that brings sacred space to God's people. I'm going to complete that task. I'm going to bring that. And so that's going to be my legacy. That's what I'm going to pass on. And so David, at the end of his life, begins to assume and, and amass all these materials for the building of the temple, and he's gathering all these materials to do it, there's only one problem. And what happens is Nathan the prophet, you remember Nathan, our old pal Nathan, right? You remember him? Nathan the prophet is sort of the thorn. Every king had a prophet, and Nathan was uh, King David's prophet. It, It was a thorn in the flesh, someone who would speak truth to power. Nathan was the prophet that confronted David after his sin with Bathsheba that led to his time of repentance. Nathan the prophet approaches David at the very end of his life as David is preparing to build the temple, and he says, David, the Lord says, you're not the guy to do it. You're not the guy to build the temple. Your your hands are stained with blood. You've, You've killed too many men over the course of your life to do something as holy and sacred as build a temple. And so what's gonna happen is it's actually gonna be your son, David, who's gonna build a temple. But then Nathan says, but here's the thing. God is going to do something even greater through your legacy than just the temple. And so what God does with David there at the end of his life is he makes a covenant with David. It's called the Davidic covenant. Covenants weren't a new thing at this point in time. God had made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. He'd also made a covenant with Moses. And now he makes a covenant with David. And the covenant, the, the agreement, the promise that God makes to David is he says, David, there will never fa- you will never fail to have a descendant of yours on the throne. And in fact, there's going to be a king, David, a Messiah, that's going to come from your family house and from the tribe of Judah, from your line, and he's going to be a king eternally. He's going to be a king forever. And of course, we know that king as Jesus. When Jesus came, he was from the tribe of, da- uh, from the tribe of Judah and from the, the house of David. And Jesus, in his sacrificial death on the cross and in his resurrection, He's a king eternally, and he will be the king after every other king has come and gone and come to pass. And so this is the promise God makes to David in this moment. But Nathan says, but David, you're not the guy. You're not going to build the temple. That's not your job. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 22 records a conversation between David and his son Solomon. So he brings his son Solomon in, and here's the conversation between them. It says, then David sent for his son Solomon, and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. My son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God, David told him. But the Lord said to me, you have killed many men in the battles you have fought. And since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace. I will give him peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. His name will be Solomon, 
and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a temple to honor my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now listen to this. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if, if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. So David in this moment calls his son and he, and he says, I'm going to pass this on to you. It's going to be your legacy to build the temple of the Lord. I'm passing that job on to you. But here's the thing, David says, your legacy, Solomon, will depend upon your faithfulness and your obedience to God. Everything you do, the only hope you've got of being successful, it doesn't, doesn't matter what you build or what you do, it will all depend on your faithfulness, your ability to be completely obedient, to be completely surrendered to God. See, what we know about David, and we've talked about it again and again and again in this series, over and over again, the word heart comes up as you, as you look at the life of David. And David, his legacy, the way we know him, even today the way we know him and the way God's people know him, is he was a man after God's own heart. That was David. And in this moment, David is saying, look, whatever you do, you're going to build this temple. That's going to be your legacy. But you got to get this, Solomon. What really matters is your heart toward God, your faithfulness, your obedience to him. And in this way, if we think about it, if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write this down. As we think about our own legacy, as we think about what the most important thing that we could possibly pass on to the next generation the most important, most influential, the most impacting thing we can pass on to the next generation is a relationship with God worth imitating. That's it. That's what David passed on to Solomon. That's what he modeled for Solomon was a relationship with God worth imitating. It doesn't mean he didn't mess up. In fact, we've been through this, right? He, David was one of the most prolific sinners in the entire Bible. But no matter how you drop David, he always had this ability to bounce back toward God. He had this relationship with God, this heart toward God that was worth imitating. And he's trying in this moment, he's in this conversation, he's trying to pass that on to Solomon. You have to understand, Solomon, you, you're going to build a temple. It's going to be great. But here's the thing. Don't lose your heart toward God. Don't let your, your heart get infected with the things of this world to the point where you lose your sensitivity to, to God and to what his spirit is saying to you. That's the most important thing we can hope to pass on to our kids. It's, in fact, it's the only thing, really, it's the only thing of substance that really matters that we can pass on to the next generation is a relationship with God worth imitating. And if we fail to pass that on to the next generation, it doesn't matter what they build. It doesn't matter how much money we give them. It doesn't matter how much power or success we pass on. This is the only thing of substance that will really matter at the end of our lives and at the end of the generations. A relationship with God worth imitating. So if you take the story there from there, David passes away. Solomon becomes the king of Israel. And Solomon is incredibly wealthy. He's incredibly successful. And he begins the process of building the temple, doing exactly what was, what was brought to him to do. In fact, the year is 950 B.C. 
and he begins to take all the materials and he begins to build the temple. And so there's a 35-acre plot of land on Mount Moriah. It's also known as the Temple Mount, which was the plot of land that had been decided during David's lifetime, which is where the temple was going to be built. And so this 35-acre plot of land begins to be constructed into the temple of God, Solomon's temple, and it takes seven years to do. Now, here's why it took seven years. It's because this was such a sacred, holy job on such a sacred, holy site that they were not allowed to use any hammers or chisels. Uh, the sound of no hammering was allowed to, to be heard on the Temple Mount. In the ancient world, that's like just mind-blowing. What they had to do literally is they had to cut in the quarry, they had to cut these rocks, these giant slabs of limestone. And then from the quarry, after they cut them and measured them, they had to drag them all the way up to the Temple Mount and put it together there because it was such a sacred, holy site that you couldn't have the sound of hammering and chiseling happening on the site. And it took them seven years to do it. But when it's finished, this temple is unrivaled in the ancient world. I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. There's nothing else like it in the ancient world. And Solomon's fame spreads all over because of it, and his wealth increases, and he gets you know, accolades from all these other nations. And it's a time of peace for Israel, and it's this time of booming economic success for under Solomon. And it, it would appear that Solomon is just going up and to the right. It would appear that everything in his life is just getting better and better and better and better. It's almost like watching LeBron James chasing Michael Jordan, you know what I mean, as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Where to where you just kind of keep watching, like, wow, if he just keeps going, maybe eventually he might eclipse it if he ends up winning a championship sometime in the next 10 years, right? I mean, he's just like, wow, he's actually doing it. He's going somewhere. And you start, and that's how you look at Solomon. It's like, man, he's on the way. He's going somewhere. But then what happens is little by little, in the midst of all this success, you start to see these cracks. He's not broken, but you can see the cracks, and his heart, his integrity begins to slip, his devotion to God. That, that thing that David said, this is what you can't lose, Solomon, it, be, it begins to go away. And what happens is the writer of 1 Kings starts to give us these little subtle clues all along that Solomon's heart is starting to slip away from God. I'll, I'll give you one example. 1 Kings 10, verse 26, it says, Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. Solomon's horses were imported from where? From Egypt and from Cilicia. Now, why was it important for us to know that? Why did the writer need us to know how many horses the guy had and the fact that he got them from Egypt? I mean, why? why? I mean, okay, we get it. He's rich. He's powerful. He's got a lot of wealth. But what you have to understand here is that in, in the ancient world, chariots and horses, that was military warfare. That's what that was. He's building up this huge military during this time of peace. And the reason that the writer is wanting us to know this, you have to remember that he's talking, the writer of 1 Kings is talking to a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience would have known the Torah forward and backward. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, and it contains the law of Moses. Remember when David was talking to Solomon, when we read that, and he said, listen, Solomon, what you have to do is you have to be fully devoted to God, completely obedient to him, and don't stray from what Moses said to do in the law of Moses. Okay, Solomon? What the writer of 1 Kings is trying to, to tell us here with all this data about how many horses he had relates to something in the law of Moses, which instantaneously the Jewish people would have recognized. In Deuteronomy, 
17, it says, The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Don't ever go back and, and see Don't go back and do what Egypt did. Egypt built this huge military empire. That's not what the king of Israel is supposed to be doing. And so when the writer is telling us all about these horses, he's expecting his original hearers to go, wait a minute, what is he doing? He's getting all these horses. He's building up all this huge uh, military warfare of all these chariots and all these horses, and he's getting them from where? Egypt. What are you doing, man? Are you kidding me? And we start to see there's this slip happening in his life. The cracks are beginning to show. He's be- his heart is beginning to turn away. And the writer of First Kings just keeps pouring it on. Verse Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh is the king of where? Egypt. He's in bed with Pharaoh's daughter. He married also women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites, which, by the way, were all enemies of Israel during the life of David. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That would be 1,000 women. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. I'll just be completely honest with you. I cannot most days keep one woman happy. (laughs) I don't know what this guy was thinking with a thousand wives. 12,000 horses. It's just more and more and more. He was just seeing, there's no limits here. I'm just going to keep going as far as I can with this. And the end result was his heart gets pulled away from God. And again, again, it's, it's amazing that, again, the heart is brought up over and over and over again as we've studied through the last six weeks. What we've seen again and again is that the heart just keeps getting brought up. And so at the end of the day, the legacy that we see David is known as a man after God's own heart. That's how God's people think of him. That's how we think of him today. Solomon, his legacy, the piece that he's known uh, as, he's the guy who turned his heart to other gods. We don't remember him as, oh, yeah, he's the guy that built the temple. Yeah, yeah, he built the temple. But the way we really remember him is he was the guy whose heart got turned away to worship other gods. He was the one who wasn't completely faithful all the way to the end of his life. Our legacy very rarely is about the things we build in our lives. Our legacy, the things we're really remembered for by the people that matter, it's very rarely about the the temple that we built or the big thing we did in our lives. It's about our hearts. Our families, the end of our lives, remember our hearts. The people we had the chance and the opportunity to lead and to mentor, our coworkers, our friends, our closest uh, family, they all remember our hearts. The only real thing we've got to pass on is a relationship with God that is worth imitating. That's it. And if we can't pass that on, we really don't have anything of great substance to pass on. And this generation needs, that's growing up, it desperately needs a relationship with God that's worth imitating.
we can't lose hold, sight of that. We can't lose hold of that. So what I, what I would love to do in the time we have remaining here is I'd love to talk to two different groups of people here in the room as we kind of think about how do I turn this toward myself? How do I apply this to, to my own life? I want to talk to two different groups of people. First of all, I want to talk to uh, the young in the room. And by the way, as a communicator, when you start talking to the young people in the room, young people, it means instantaneously that you are no longer one of the young people, <laughs> I think, anyway. Um, so I'm going to talk to the young people in the room for a moment. And uh, the, the word for you is we think about this, what does it mean to pass on a legacy, a relationship with God that's worth imitating? The, the word to you is embrace your limits. If you're a young person here, if you've got a young family, embrace your limits now. Do it early. Solomon would have done well to embrace his limits. He had 1,000 wives, 12,000 horses, 1,400 chariots. He's getting them from where? Egypt. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to go there. He had no limits. It was just about going as big and as far as he possibly could go. But the way we actually accept priorities and the way that we actually experience uh, true life, the way we pass on a legacy, a relationship with God that's worth imitating, is we set boundaries, particularly boundaries in the areas of sacred time and sacred space. But let me, let me say this very, very clearly for you. Our world will not help you set boundaries for yourself or for your family if, you're a, if you have a young family. Uh, sports, work, uh, even vacation plans, our world will not set boundaries for you around the areas of sacred time and sacred space, what we're experiencing right now. It won't. You will have to do that yourself. And, and here's the thing. Sports, work, va vacation, my family's doing all those things. I'm not saying those things are bad. Here's the issue. Um, the, the barrier that we have to spiritual growth, the barrier we have to, to having a relationship with God that's worth imitating, the barrier to any kind of major spiritual legacy that, that in our families is not you know, a lack of commitment to God. It's overcommitment to all the wrong things. Solomon started out committed to God. It's not, that, it's not a lack of commitment to God. It's, a, it's all this overcommitment. It's yes to everything, no boundaries, no limits. We live in this world where we have these things called smartphones. Man, do you, I'm actually old enough where I can remember what life was like before a smartphone. And I can barely, I can't even imagine how I functioned. Anybody else in that boat? These things have just revolutionized our lives. I mean, I can't remember what I did last time I needed directions and I couldn't find them. If I'm missing my cell phone, which happens regularly, I'll set it down somewhere. There is like this moment of panic that comes up inside of me. There is like anxiety. Oh, no, my phone. Because I, it's become like an appendage. It's such a part of me. These phones have made our lives infinitely better. But in a way, what these phones have really done for us is they've allowed us to kind of be omnipotent. So now I can be on and I can be connected anytime, any place. So I can be at the beach with my family. And yet I can also be checking emails for work. I can be with my wife on a date and yet still responding to texts from, you know, people that are asking me questions from church or whatever it is. I can be connected all the time, any place, any time. But what we learn baked into this whole thing from the very, very beginning of creation is that human beings are not free unless they have boundaries around sacred time, sacred space. In other words, we're not free until we can do that right there. The world won't help you do that. The world will not help you set boundaries and embrace your limits 
You'll have to do it yourself. I'm here to tell you, I'm just trying to challenge you. Um, as a young family, if that's you, set those boundaries now. Embrace your limits now. Show your kids that, we're, that it, a life that's truly a good life, a relationship with God that's worth imitating doesn't come from just saying yes to everything and embracing every opportunity and running away from every kind of boundary or limit that you could have in your life. Embrace your limits. Do it young. Do it now. Solomon would have benefited from this. Um, then I want to talk, if I could, for a moment to the older folks in the room. Um, because there are no old people here today, just so we're clear. There's nobody in here who's old. Um, so I'll talk to the older people instead. And the, the word for you, as we think about this legacy piece, as we look at David as the older, the father in the story, the word, the word is number your days. Learn what it means to number your days. We get that phrase, number your days, from Moses. In Psalm 90, Moses prays at the end of his life, and he says, God, teach me to number my days. You know, you know what that means, to number your days? It means to live with this awareness that there is a clock and the clock is ticking. You don't have forever to make an impact. You don't have forever to just kind of hang out and do whatever. You have a clock. And my observation is that we all just tend to live better lives when we number our days, when we live as if there is a clock that's ticking. We just do. You see it over and over again in the Bible. Moses isn't the one to lead God's people into the promised land. Joshua is the one to do that. His days were numbered. They came to an end. David is not the one to build the temple. His days are numbered. It's Solomon who does it. John the Baptist was not the Messiah. His days are numbered. And Jesus is the one. He's the, the king eternal. We have limits that we have to embrace, learn to embrace young. And then as we get older, we have to learn what it means to number our days and what it means to say, what is not mine to do, but that I'm going to begin to invest into the next generation I'm not just going to disappear onto a golf course. We're not going to do that. We're going to invest. There's a relationship with God that's worth imitating that we want to pass on, so we're going to invest into the next generation. I haven't sh I've shared this with a couple groups in the church. I've never shared it publicly up front, but uh, two years ago, I was gifted the opportunity to take a, a three-month sabbatical by the church very generously. So I was 39 years old at the time in 2016, and I took the, a three-month sabbatical. And the year previous to that, at 38, I had been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and if that's new information to some of you, just to let you know, I'm in a good place with that right now, but it's a kind that it, they have no cure for. And so I have to keep going back and, you know, getting checked and all that kind of stuff. And so um, what, it, what it does, if, and if you've gone through something like that or you've had a diagnosis like that, it, 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 you know, I'll tell you what it does. It numbers your days. It teaches you to look at your life differently, and you go, oh, wait, there is a clock, and it's ticking, and I, I don't think I have forever like I once thought. And it changes the way you perceive, and it changes the way you perceive your life and what you're doing with your life. And so at 39 years old, I'd been through this whole experience the year before, and I went on this three-month sabbatical, and I had one burning question that I wanted answered from God. And so I'm not kidding you. I would wake up every morning. I would go, and I would spend time every morning with God. I, took a, I would take a journal with me. And I could show you my journal entries day after day after day. The question, this burning question I had that I desperately wanted God to answer for me in that period of time, that three-month sabbatical, the question was, God, what do you want me to do with my 40s? 39 years old, what do you want my 40s to be all about? And that was my way of saying, God, help me number my days. What, do you, what should I be doing with my 40s? 
and again and again and again. It just got confirmed over and over again, not only through just my times with the Lord um, in that summer, but also conversations with mentors and other things I was reading and learning again and again and again. What I came back from that sabbatical with, what I felt like God just confirmed again and again was I felt like God said, Brian, in your 40s, I want you to be a king maker, not a king. My 30s were all about being a king. It was all about getting to be the guy at the top, seeing how far I could go with it, pushing every opportunity I could. It was about being the king, seeing how many people I could influence and have underneath me. That's what my 30s were all about. And I felt like at 39, going on this sabbatical, I felt like what God said to me was, Brian, your 40s, the only thing better than being a king is being a kingmaker. And since we've studied through the life of David, Samuel was never a king of Israel. But Samuel was the one who anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. I felt like what God was saying to me was, Brian, for your 40s, I want you to invest, to be a kingmaker, to raise up others. So I came back from that sabbatical, and for the last two years, I did not plan this, just so you know, we didn't like orchestrate this, but God has brought into my life, not just on our staff, although I would include on our staff, but also just in my life in general and work I do with the district and other, some, some other things I'm involved in, God has brought all these young men and women into my life who I am just pouring into right now. And I'm not pouring into like as a, as a critic, like, oh, you did that wrong. Yeah, you'll learn someday there. But, but as like a coach, a mentor, somebody to invest in them, to walk alongside them, to believe in them, and to open the door and give them opportunities to grow and to develop. And I'm looking at my boys uh, who are becoming teenagers at this stage of life, and I, I'm looking at them differently, and I'm engaging with them differently. And here's what I would tell you. The last two years, I am having more fun right now in ministry than I ever have in my entire life. I'm having more fun as a parent. Now, there are some challenging challenging things we're dealing with as parents at this stage, but I'm having more fun as a parent than I've ever had in my entire life. That's what happens when we begin to number our days and we begin to come to God and just say, God, at the stage of life I'm in right now, what does it mean? What, what, does, it mean? How, what does it mean for me to live a relationship with you that's worth imitating and to begin to lean into that and pass it on? I'm confident he'll show you if you ask him. But if all you're interested in doing is sort of surrounding yourself with an insulated life so you can focus on you for, the la- for your final years, I just, I just want to tell you, I'm having more fun I've, than I've ever had. The greatest adventure you will find will not be on a golf course. God has something more. And I'm seeing my world differently. These kind of things happen all the time. This past week, I had this moment where I, I was driving home after work, and I was uh, pulling into my driveway, and I pushed the button on my garage door opener, right? And the garage door begins to go up. I'm about to pull my car into the garage door, and I can't. This has been a familiar thing ever since school got out. And the reason I can't pull my car in is because my boys have left their bikes all, like, in the way, right, of where my car goes. So then they come back from a bike ride, and they just, like, and then they just go inside and do whatever. And uh, has anybody else experienced this? Am I the only one? And so I pull, I pull in, and the garage door opens up, and I can't get my car in because once again, their, their bikes are out. So I put the car in park. I get out, and I'm about to walk in the house and just blast them. Like, come on, get back out here. Put your bike away. We've talked about this before. And I felt like God spoke to me. I wish God would speak to me more often when these moments happen. Uh, sometimes I just go in and blast them. But in, in this moment, anyway, I felt like God just stopped me as I was walking in the house to let him have it. What I felt like the Holy Spirit just stopped me and said to me in that moment was, Brian, someday you will drive home and you will push the button on the garage door and it will open and there will be no bikes in your way. 
And in that moment, you will wish for this moment back. What are you passing on? What do you want to pass on? The clock is ticking. You're on the clock. Are you passing on a relationship with God that's worth imitating? Or are you passing on a whole bunch of stuff that at the end of your life is not going to matter at all? What do you want your family to remember you for? I'm going to invite the band to come back out. And uh, we're going to close this morning by singing that, this song, King of My Heart. As they come out, I wonder if we could just do some business with the Lord right now. So if you'd bow your heads with me as the band's um, making their way back out. So for some of you, maybe in this room, maybe you don't think about your legacy very often. Maybe you just think about 9 to 5 or the next 24 hours that are right in front of you. Maybe for some of you in this room today, I wonder if God is beginning to stir something, beginning to say, man, there's some things I need to change. Maybe there's some limits some boundaries that you need to put in place. As you've got a young family, you've got your whole life ahead of you and the world isn't going to help you put those boundaries in place and maybe you need to say, oh God, help me to carve out some space, to, to embrace some limits so that the life we're living is centered around sacred time, sacred space and that we're focused on you, focused on the most important things. Maybe some of you are at a stage of life where you're enjoying the fruits of your labor, and that's nothing wrong with that. You're enjoying a life well-lived and a job and a career where you've worked hard. Maybe this morning you're sensing God's tapping you on the shoulder to say, you ain't dead yet because I ain't done with you yet. You have things to invest. You have a relationship with God that's worth imitating that needs to get passed on. Maybe this morning you just say, yes, God, I'll do it. I'll lean in, I'll, I'll recommit, I'll re-up, I'll let you use me at this stage of my life. Lord Jesus, we just come before you in this place and we just recognize that none of us is going to live forever. Every single one of us has boundary lines and limits on our lives. And despite the fact that we feel like maybe uh, we can just kind of do whatever we want, God, we just recognize in this place, space this morning, Lord, you call us and you give us life and you let us be a part of this world. You let us be a part of your kingdom in this world for a certain amount of time and then we go to eternity. We thank you for the hope we have in that. We thank you for the, for the joy of salvation that we have. But God, this morning, we just pray that you would just speak to us about how to be kingmakers, be a generation of people that raise up the next generation, that pour into them, that don't just disappear uh, you know, into some sunset somewhere, but that actually invest and give it all and lay it all out on the field until our final day, until we take our final breath. That's the kind of people we want to be, God. We want to model what it means to have a relationship with you worth imitating. We want to be people who pursue you passionately, Jesus, in every area of our lives, and so, God, help us to be that. We, we know we can't do that on our own energy, on our own strength. But just like David, no matter how many times we, ball, we fall, God, let us bounce right back to you in our hearts, that we would have a heart after your own heart. That's what we ask, God. That's what we pray for. So we commit ourselves to that endeavor today. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Man, would you stand with us? We're going to go out of this place singing today.